everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Earlier this season on Everyday Injustice, we spoke with Flint Taylor, who highlighted his years of fighting to expose the Chicago torture scandal. We also spoke with Illinois Governor, former Illinois Governor, George Ryan, who ended the death penalty in Illinois in part due to the torture scandal. And today we are going to talk more about the torture scandal with a couple of people that uh, were unfortunate victims. And uh, we're going to talk about the death row 10. Uh, So I want to introduce you to Joan Parkin, who worked on this way back, starting, what, 30 years ago? And uh, welcome to our show. Not quite 30 years ago, <laughs> 1999, um, started in 1998. Okay, 20 years ago, sorry. Give me, 20, <laughs> give me, give me 10 years, David. Um, yeah, yeah, hey, thank you, David. Thank you so much for asking us to be part of this podcast. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm Joan Parkin. I had the good fortune to be asked to be the Death Row 10 coordinator to organize on behalf of um, 10 men that were wrongfully convicted and were in railroaded to prison on the basis of confessions that were extracted under torture by a former police commander and his veteran police cohorts. And um, I worked very closely with Stanley Howard, who was on the phone right now. Stanley was a strategist for the Death Row 10. He and the, the guys actually created the idea of it. They named it. They created a flyer that they cut and pasted out of magazines. And they sent it to an activist-based organization called the Campaign to End the Death Penalty that was um, directed uh, by executive director was Marlene Martin. She's the one who had made their acquaintances through her work with the Illinois Coalition. And, um, and then handed off the coordinator role of Death Row 10 to me. Mark Clements has been a tireless activist where the campaign and the death penalty eventually um, folded, but Mark has never stopped the struggle. He has remained, remained boots on the ground, keeping this issue in the light, an issue that without Mark probably would not be in people's hearts and minds the way that it is today. So Mark is an indispensable part of this struggle. David, I'm really grateful. I'm going to turn it over to the guys, but just one thing. Um, The story that doesn't get told is the story of the activist, activist story. You hear the lawyers and some lawyers did some amazing work. 
and you hear from a governor, and if not for the governor, we wouldn't have gotten the pardons and we wouldn't have gotten the commutations. But if not for the activists, they never would have, it would never have happened. And this is a story that doesn't get in the press. It doesn't make the mainstream press, but really this was a story, an amazing story that began behind the walls. And it was the prisoners that created the idea that had the momentum, that worked with the activists hand in glove, day by day, phone call after phone call, visit after visit, working with the family members, working with the mothers. That's what got this thing to budge and that's what got it in the light. So um, I'm so grateful that we're getting a little bit of airtime here. And uh, without further ado, I'm gonna turn it over to uh, Stanley Howard, who's on the phone. Okay. I would like to thank everybody for giving me this opportunity. Thank you also, David. And I would love to be able to take any questions that you like, like to have. Well, let me let me start here because um, you know I'm I'm almost ashamed to admit it, but up until a few months ago, I'd never even heard of the torture scandal, uh, which is kind of crazy because I've paid attention to stuff like this for thirty years now. And uh, it was only when I read Flint Taylor's book uh, that I became aware of it. And I assume if I haven't heard of it, that a lot of other people haven't. So can somebody kind of describe what it was uh, so that people kind of understand and just how bad it was? Because, uh, you know, I think we throw a lot of terms around. But in this case, you know, we're really talking about something out of Abu Ghraib here. We're, we're not talking about you know, a Sunday school picnic where somebody got pushed. Yes. See, that is part of the problem. The reason why you never heard about this thing is because the media, the people wanted to sweep this on the rug. And it makes me angry as hell, knowing that most people never heard about this great American tragedy. Now look, it's in the same manner in which the Tulsa massacre, the Black Wall Street massacre occurred. It was covered up. It's the same racist manner that the Chicago police torture scandal was also covered up. Why so? Because they didn't want you to know what really happened. They don't want people to know that when you when you pull back the curtains, you will see every bit of what actually happened. A bunch of racist cops torturing black men with an impunity for 20, 30 years. Anybody knew about it. The Chicago Police Department, City Hall, and the prosecutors were in on it. And some of these prosecutors went on to become judges. They never dismissed not one torture confession. They always believed the cops over the defendant. Always. So this is what led to this scandal. This is a great American tragedy that most people have never heard of. Now, when the prosecutors are in on the and the judges, the appeal courts, they keep seeing the same defendants' names over and over again, year after year, I mean, same cops' names, year after year after year, different defendants, same technique, same torture claims, but they never want to grant relief. They knew what was going on. They all got away with it. And they ruined many lives, generations and generations of lives. Why so? Because of a 
broken, crooked, racist, criminal justice system that we are still dealing with. Yes, I'd like to chime in on what Tom was saying about the activist role also, because I am a strong believer in that. When I was on death row, and I was saying that the courts was continually denying us relief, the other death row members that I was there with, I said to myself, wait a minute. These people are actually going to execute all of us if we do not change our tactics. So I came up with the idea, look, let's take this fight to the streets instead of taking this fight inside behind these closed court, courtroom doors. So I wrote letters and letters and letters to people together. And this is how the people actually started the protesting and getting involved on our behalf. It wasn't until then that these so-called prosecutors, I mean, politicians, and these judges and prosecutors who are pro uh, politicians also, they started to backpedal a little bit. And then we started to get some action here. We started to get some recognition. But still, David, right now today, most people do not know about this tragedy. You heard about Flint Taylor's book. When I heard that the Chicago, uh, uh, the Chicago was giving out reparations, and I heard that they were going to teach ninth grade and 10th grade students about the, about the scandal, I said to myself, wait a minute, whoa. These lawyers and these so-called scholars was going to get together and write the textbook to sell to the city of Chicago. And I knew in my mind what I was saying, that it was going to be a watered-down version of what, they, of what happened. So what I did, I got together with Mark Clemens, Ronald Kitchen, and Marguerite, and we talked and talked and talked and talked, and we put together our own book called Torture by Blue to give a perspective of what happened from the inside. And, and it's my mission, and I'm sure Mark would concur now, and it's probably his too. It is my mission to tell the world about what happened in Chicago and what happened to all the people that was involved. I don't want to wait a hundred years from now like the torture scandal, like the torture massacre, and all of a sudden people, oh, we didn't know. No, I want to start telling the world about it now. And that's what I'm, that's what, that's what I'm trying to do, even from this side of the world. Stanley, would you mind no. just telling us a little bit about your case, how you, how you were tortured? Thank you. Well, in 1984, November 1984, I was arrested for the armed robbery of two all three Chicago police officers. I was 21, I was 20 years old. I was 20 years old when the crime occurred. They got me to the police station after someone told them that it was me that was involved in the crime. These cops handcuffed me behind my back and then handcuffed me to a wall and they beat the living hell out of me. It was two of them at first, and then the sergeant, John Burns, joined in with James Latino and Robert Buffo. They beat me throughout the night. I called, I tried to withstand the beating. And as they was beating me, they kept telling me about a murder that I knew nothing about. They kept asking me about crimes I knew nothing about, trying to get me to confess to a murder and crime that I knew nothing about. But they kept feeding me information. One cop put a plastic bag over my head and suffocated me. I thought they were trying to kill me. You couldn't have told me 
that they was just trying to scare They was trying to kill me. And I knew they was. The bag had a hole in it. So the cop left and said, oh, okay, we got something for you. And he left and came back with this really long typewriter cover that he had got off one of the typewriters from the adjacent room. And he wrapped this typewriter around my head. And he came up on the side of me and he literally choked me out with this plastic bag while the other two cops was beating the hell out of me. I fainted. And when I woke up, I saw these cops standing over me, waking me up, trying to check me where, you know, Stanley, you okay? Stanley, you okay? They couldn't kill me instead of knocking me out. They beat the hell out of me some more. And then when he approached me with the plastic bag again, sadly, I, I think I would do the same thing all over again. I decided to confess to a crime I did not commit. And they used this confession to send me to death row. And miraculously, 36, 37 years later, I am still here fighting, not because a cop tortured me to confession to this crime. A cop claimed that I gave him an oral confession and his word has still been taken as though it's gold when everybody knows what happened. These people refuse to give up and I'm still here. But I'm still being tortured. I'm still being tortured every day when I hear about other tortured survivors out in the streets. And I'm still being tortured when I know that neither one of these cops has ever felt the pain of being locked behind one of these doors. All these cops got away with it. Full pension and benefits. Retired so they was heroes. And no one is still doing anything. But it's my mission to change that. I, I, I must apologize. If I sound emotional, it's just that every time I go to talking about this issue, even 30-some years later, it always pisses me off. And hopefully one day I might be able to tell the story calmly. I'm sorry. Okay, please, go ahead. Ronnie has joined us. David, meet Ronnie Kitchen. Ronnie Kitchen, meet David Greenwell, the executive director of the Davis Vanguard. Hi, Ronnie. How you doing, David? Good. Uh, we got Stanley on the phone. Stanley, you get you probably only have a few more minutes. Is there anything else you want to add, or David, you want him to? You want another question to, at Stanley? Well, I, I guess the big question that I have is what. Um, I, I want to know, um, you know, what types of things he did on the inside to get the world's attention. Well, one, when I first realized that it was a bunch of us on death row, me and other death row prisoners got together and decided to behave for help from the outside. And that helped really, really ignited a fire that we did not expect to turn into the flame that it did. It also got his attention in my heart of hearts. I believe that if it wasn't for what was going on with the boots on the ground, Governor Ryan would not have done what he did. 
in my heart's of hearts, if it wasn't for the activists and the boots that was on the ground and people compl- complaining, the prosecutors probably would never even win at the birds for the person. You have one minute left. But what I am doing now, along with Ronnie and many other guys, we are we are writing. We are still telling our story. We got a play coming out. We still have our book coming out. And next month, I'm having a $10,000 essay contest. Quote, Jews in the book, Torture by Blue, tell us why did the John Burr's torture scandal last so long? And I'm hoping that the essay contest will ignite students and prisoners around the country where everybody is, is invited to participate in the essay contest. So I am still trying to mobilize. I'm still trying to organize. I'm still trying to do what I can do from this side of the wall. I thank you, Dave, for giving me this opportunity. Sorry the 20 minutes just took so fast but thank you again thank you for joining us thanks you guys okay mark thanks for hanging in there um so uh well our new guest is ronnie kitchen ronnie kitchen was um one of the death row 10 he was one of the organizers on the inside who helped bring this thing to light his mother was one of the lead uh members of the death row 10 fight she spoke everywhere and went everywhere and there he goes um and so but i think we're still being recorded so we'll just keep going and he'll probably pop back on but um yeah is uh ronnie's mother went with us everywhere from from dc to um to oakland and uh she was a tireless advocate and so ronnie spent many years on death row for something he didn't do he was forced to confess and um now he's out there um, fighting the fight. So thank you, Ronnie, so much for coming to our Zoom session tonight. It's really, really good to see you. <laughs> Brings tears to my eyes. Um, but anyway, um, I guess the, if we could, um, you could let us know a little bit about what you've been doing. You talk about your book um, and... Uh, yeah, what life is like for you well, now? Life is good. Life is good. I am uh, married. Got uh, a new grandchild, a new grandbaby. She's three now, which, you know, she's old as she want to be. Got a new nine. I got a nine-year-old that you met some years ago. Uh, Tina, we still standing strong, fighting the fight. The book is... The book was my relief and my therapy when uh, we wrote it in 2015. We wrote, we actually wrote it in 2015. It got published in, in 18. It came out in 2018. It took some, it took some years to get it done, but we got it done. Um, I was speaking, but since COVID came, that closed a lot of it down. I do a, a few Zoom calls, still trying to advocate against uh, injustice, uh, Polish brutality, equal liberties and, and fascism and racism. I still speak out on, on, on some things, well, on those things when I can. Um, but like, like, like Stanley said, uh, we live for the fight. The fight is in us, you know, and we will continue to fight. Even when we're dead and gone, our fighting spirit gonna live on through those who carried our spirit, who 
who fought and stood with us in the background, in the front, in the forefront, on the sides, you know, it's going to still live on. And that I, I believe, and that's what we're trying to do when we put these books together, like Stanley said, put these plays together, um, trying to organize, still trying to organize, try to find voices, new voices for those who still left behind and those that's going to come because it's not stopping it. And as we, as we see that uh, the new thing is with the, with the police stuff is stop resisting or he has a weapon now. That's, that's, that's the new killjoy. And we have to continue our fight and, and keep exposing those who are doing these um, terrorist acts against our neighborhood. You know, people always talk about terrorism. The black, the black neighborhoods has been terrorized too since I was a little kid. So we know what terrorists look like, and it ain't the people that's over across the water. It's the people that wearing the blue. So, and and that's that's why our fight stands. Ronnie, would you mind um, just telling us a little bit on uh, how you ended up on on death row? Would you give us a you know, if you can talk about the torture, then well, that was good. But you know, just what could, I was, I was, I was picked up for auto theft. They said somebody had just pointed me out and stood in a car, which I never even stole a car. So I get picked up for auto theft. Auto theft, and next, you know, I'm in Third Night in California, being pulverized uh, into. What I found that later was five murders. And, um, you know, people say, well, I wouldn't confess to something that I didn't do. Well, you have to be in those shoes. You have to see what the police does to people, that the mind games, the verbal, the physical, the, the, you know, the, the, the assault on the mind that they put you through. Anybody can say what they won't do until they get put in that position when it comes down to life, to life or death. And when it came down to life or death, I choose life. I choose that I'm gonna, I'm gonna get me my say later on, I guess, and I felt through the courts, but I seen that the courts was just as crooked as the cops was. So um, I was tortured for over 17 hours by Michael Kill Smith in John Burge himself. And um, like I said, I was tortured for 17 hours. And the physical assault on my body, as well as the mental assault on my mind, broke me down. And I remember when the state's attorney came in 17 hours later and he read my rights. And I told him that I don't wanna talk to the police anymore. I mean, I don't want to talk to you. I want to call my lawyer. He said, you have a lawyer? I'm, I'm like, yeah. I told the police 17, 20 something hours ago that I had an attorney, but that flew over their head. So he leave out the room, Michael Keel or Smith come in. They come in and start pounding me some more here. I tell them, I, you know, I, 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 I do what you want me to do. So they go back out and get Keel or Smith. And they walk in like, you ready? I tell them, I don't want to talk to you. I want to call my lawyer. So uh, 
the state's turn to leave back out again. They come back again. It's happened three times. So the third time I finally gave in because I seen that it was no win that he going to go in and say he want to call his lawyer. They're going to come in and beat my ass some more. So I felt that it was no win. I, it, 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 it was no win in this police station. But I felt within my heart that when I go in front of the judge, the judge will see that I have been beaten. I'm, 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 I'm messed all up. So the judge, the judge is going to see this. And I felt that the judge is going to see this. And I felt and believed that he was going to do his job. And what he did do his job. He was a state's attorney judge. So everything we put in front of this judge, he denied. Uh, the lawyer I had was, uh, shit, uh, what, what we would call an ambulance chaser because he was no good, even though I knew him for years. He was no good because they walked over him like he was a mat. He did no investigation. Uh, he expected, he, he expected, uh, my sister and my mom to do investigation, what they paid him to do. So the whole process of me being charged, convicted, well, the whole process of me being tortured, charged, convicted, placed on death row was, was, was mind blowing. It was. And if it, if it wasn't for, and if it wasn't for Jones, who I met through my mom, my mom brought Jones down to meet us. And I, I guess what, like 98? Was that like 98, Jones? Yeah. Like 98? Yeah. And the ball started rolling, like Stanley said. The ball started rolling. Because years prior to that, it was Aaron Patterson and those other guys. But Jones... Alice Kim, Marlene Martin, uh, Noreen, and some other people put faces to our names. Joan and Alice used to come there every Sunday to strategize with us, to put things together. So when I talk about soldiers and soldiering, I put my mom, Joan, Alice, uh, Marlene Martin, Noreen, the campaign. They, they was the campaign. Frank Baumbaum was the campaign. Stanley Mom was the campaign. They was the campaign. They made that campaign what it was. They made that campaign strong because they were the true soldiers. When the police was threatening them, when people were spitting on them, uh, 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 verbally assaulting them, they stood their ground for us. So when you, when you talk about strength, our strength came from them. They want to say they strength came from us. But no, to hear what they was going to, you can't do nothing but stand your ground and stand firm and, and let them see that light within you, even though you feel dark on the inside of where you at. And just to call them and, and, and hear a soothing voice and uh, 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 a friendly voice a voice that actually cared. We're talking about people who you never, I, I met Joan in 90, 98, but you would think that I've been knowing her all my life of the connection that we had when we first met. And it still goes on right to this day. And, this, and that's what I'm talking about. When, I, when you talk about organizing and campaign, 
I put Joan there. I, I, I see Joan. I see Alice. I see Marlene. I see Noreen. I, I see women that fought, that stood their ground in the battles of evil and darkness, and they stood their ground, and we won. Mark has been patiently waiting and are just enjoying the show. And so it'd be great to hear from Mark. Well, I think that it's fitting that I basically go last because without their work, I would still be incarcerated. Uh, and without the work of the mothers, I would still be incarcerated. And, you know, let's not make this into anything other than what it was. These were a bunch of criminals, a bunch of thugs that saw opportunity to kidnap people out of the street, take them down to the police station to mistreat them and to brutalize them and to confessions that led to convictions. Dennis Porter, who I believe was Ronnie's uh, judge. Dennis Porter has a history of- Vincent Vinger was my judge, Mark. Who? Vincent Vinger, Vincent, Vincent Benavinger. Oh, okay, okay. Well, I thought it was Dennis Porter. However, all of these judges were tied in with the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. It was a slam dunk, sort of speak, with confessions being gained. Me being a 16-year-old child and taken down to the police station, held there incommunicado, absent of parents and a youth officer, it was a slam dunk to get beat and to have my genitals and testicles grabbed and squeezed and to be called a nigger boy and to be framed in 1981 with four murders. Uh, there was an arson fire on the city of Chicago, in the city of Chicago that led to four people losing their lives and these were police officers that made a living and basically framing wrong people and mis, uh, misguiding people in society, telling victims of crime that they had solved the crime uh, based off of their illegal behavior. It's still this day remains to be mind blowing that now one of these police officers, not including John Burge, has ever been held accountable for the actual tortures that they engaged into. Uh, spending 28 years of my life inside of a prison, I would say, being a kid and going inside of those prisons, I was more determined to come out and to fight 
because I wanted some form of justice. I am the only one out of many torture survivors that had to plead to be released. So how do you take a victim out of an arson fire and say, well, you kill one of those individuals when all four died the same way? That's what happened to me. Unfortunately, had I not uh, accepted that plea bargain to win my freedom, then I would have not been around because my mom's was died. She was dying of cancer. Many people look at the fact, as Ronnie has best explained, that why would you confess to a crime that you never committed? Well, if you grab someone's genitals and testicles, you are going to say that your mother committed that crime. We were people that were treated the worst of the worst. We are people still this day that are viewed as the worst of the worst. These police officers are still treated as heroes. That stuff, it angers me now today. And I've lost all of my little energy and my body uh, getting out of prison and watching the campaign uh, to end the death penalty, uh, restore upon me the leadership to continue this fight for brothers and sisters that remained locked up behind prison walls. There are still quite a few individuals that still remain to linger behind the prison walls. There are people that are under the instinct that the Cook County State's Attorney's Office has reformed itself. It still has not reformed itself, not even with an African-American. It still has not reformed itself. As Mr. Stanley Howard best described, Chicago police tortures have only reached the national scale media-wise one time. Why? It's in large part because some of these cops are in bed with news media. Some of these cops have family members that are prosecutors. Some of these cops are individuals that are concurrently working for the prosecutor's office. The key of it is, is that this was stem-stemic. It was racist. It was allowed to go on for 21 years under John Burge, and it continued even once John Burge had been fired from the Chicago Police Department. Here it is, a Michael Kill that took part in Ronnie and Marvin's situation of their torture at Area 3 Violent Crimes, who testified that he has been accused of committing 
tortures more than 900 times, but he's given credibility up until his death. He was viewed more credible than an individual that could come in and to show you wounds. Here it is a African-American state's attorney and Kim Fox that has now just been exposed for basically covering up evidence in the Jackie Wilson case. Jackie Wilson was one of two brothers that were accused of killing two Chicago police officers back in 1982. Chicago is corrupt, no different than California, but they have remained to keep a tight grip on these torture cases where that torture reparations is reached in 2015 in which the mayor admits these police officers engaged into a systematic pattern of police torture. But why are the guys still hemmed up, locked up behind a prison wall? Here it is, up until recent, it was only recognized that men, African-American and Latino men, were the victims of John Birch, men. Now it's surfacing that there are several females that were taken down to area two, as well as three violent crime units, and they were tortured. One of the females lost her child as a result of being slammed into a wall. All of this stuff is criminal, and it's so criminal that it's sickening. This is my life as a kid because they took my life from me. So watching this little skinny woman named Joan Parkin, and I would literally see this woman on the news all the time, and she would always be giving the system hell. And if we had just 100 Joan Parkins, I think that we would have saw a John Burge go to prison for the actual tortures. We would have seen other police officers go to prison for their tortures, but unfortunately we have not. And that is the problem. You mean to tell me that locking a kid up inside of a prison and giving that kid four natural lives inside of a prison, that that's going to deter crime? No, it only elevated crime. And to just think about the fact that some of the people like Stanley has been incarcerated over 36 years of their lives. When is enough enough? So I will end on that. Wow. Um, so, so Joan, you want to um, tell your story? We have about 15 minutes left here. <laughs> I, I won't take that. 
but um, yeah, this has been a really powerful show. And um, what I, I kept thinking the more I'm listening is, you know, this is really what you get in a country where black lives don't matter. And the police torture issue is horrific, but symptomatic. It's symptomatic of a much larger problem, which Mark was talking about, which is systematic racism in the United States. When I first came to Chicago, I came from New York and I'd been dealing with a lot of police murder cases. Um, you know, Leonard Lawton, 15 years old, shot in the face from 10 feet away. You know, uh, Nicholas um, shot with a toy gun at like 10 years old. I mean, there was just story after story after story. So I thought I'd seen quite a bit. I thought I'd seen it all. And when I got to Chicago and heard about torture, I just didn't believe it. What it what I, it takes a while to really get your head around how deep this thing is. And um, I saw a video called The End of the Nightstick, which is a really, I highly recommend it because it, 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 it was the earlier struggle that led to John Burge being forced to retire. And those activists cataloged um, the, the tortures. And in it, they talk about electroshock. And they talk about young black men from Chicago South Side um, being tortured with alligator clips on their genitals and on their earlobes. And Burge, the redheaded officer, would, would turn the box, turn the box. He was using a Tucker telephone, which has a charge, which he had learned to use, use in Vietnam. And it was these electrodes that were running through their bodies that would force them to confess. And when I heard about that, I knew that we had something very, very different than anything that I'd ever, ever heard about before at least that this is some abu great stuff that we're talking about here right here in chicago illinois um i used to ask well how do they sleep at night they they must not know they must the judges can't possibly know the prosecutors can't possibly know because i know that even though i was on the left i think i still had some belief in the system i held on right but then the more we dug in, the more we found out, oh my God, the current state's attorney, Dick Devine, was the assistant state's attorney when these guys were making their confessions. The mayor, Daly, was actually the state's attorney at the time. The judges knew because they had heard over and over again the exact descriptions of the very specific types of beatings. When Stanley talked about that typewriter cover, that's been said over and over again from guys that never knew each other about the typewriter cover, how it was used to, to, to suffocate them. And so this pattern and practice of systematic abuse was known and was used. They didn't just know about it. They used these confessions in order to gain promotion, in order to advance their careers. So how did they sleep at night knowing that they had committed uh, homicide, crimes, criminals and the fact is is because they're racist they're 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 friggin racist they absolutely do not believe that black lives matter as much as white lives these aren't like their kids they don't have the kind of value of their children they saw them as as no better than some plantation slave that's that's the level of, of objectification that was going on. So they could do whatever they wanted to their bodies. It didn't matter. And they could frame them and they could send them away for life and they could go to their parties and they could go to their churches and they could go to their country clubs and they could live their lives. The difference that we made was that 
the way they get away with that is by making it look like it's just one mass. It's through racism, which stereotypes, which generalizes. Instead, we pick individuals out and put their faces on placards and their mothers were out front being interviewed by Channel 7, by mainstream, mainstream newspapers. And all of a sudden, it's much harder to frame someone once you, they have a name. Once you have a Ronnie Kitchen that has a mother named Luva Bell, right? You have a Stanley Howard with a Jeanette Johnson. And as soon as we started to mobilize with our placards and with our family members, we were instant news. I didn't do anything special. Believe me, there's nothing about this face that got me on the news. I didn't do anything special. It was ready to pop. It was a situation that couldn't con continue because you had... Um, corruption at such a deep level that it almost couldn't handle being exposed. And once we started to expose it and once we started to shine light and once we started to follow Dick Devine around and go to his office and tell the, the people that he worked with that his hands were covered in blood and all the demonstrations that we went to and the rallies and bringing Jesse Jackson to death row. I mean, it was on and on, you know, Alice, Kim, my partner in crime, you know, Alice and I, we, we, we were, we led this thing. Marlene Martin was the director. She was overseeing it. We reported to her and then Noreen was right in there with us. I mean, it really was the, it really was our, the work that we did putting a human face on the torture issue that helped to bust the whole thing wide open. And there's a, it's interesting that we knew that if you could expose the torture issue, if you could show how racist the system was, it would be impossible to keep the death penalty functioning the way that it was. Because if you literally have people that were tortured with electroshock and suffocation, and they are wrongfully convicted on death row, how can you trust the death penalty system? If the same people that are covering up electroshock and, and suffocation and torture are the same people that are administering the death penalty system, you can't trust it. And so this was what we knew all along that if we expose a torture issue, it's gonna open up, it's gonna be like a can of worms. And that's exactly what happened. We won, as Ronnie said, we won, we won big. Um, and so on, on the 9th of January at DePaul, Governor Ryan started to say to the world, and it was the, the, literally the whole world was watching, he started to mouth the words that we had said over and over again. He said, you know, Ronnie Kitchen, beaten with a telephone book. He said, Stanley Howard suffocated. He said the words, he described the torture for the world. <laughs> I was for the first time so shocked, I couldn't even be interviewed. The reporter put the mic up to me. I couldn't even talk, I was so stunned because it was a dream that was happening right at that exact moment. Ronnie, sorry, got a backpedal, Ronnie, didn't get out with the four. He got out later on D on DNA evidence. And that was um, outrageous. It was outrageous. It was the one, it was a bittersweet victory because of that. Um, we had to wait for Ronnie to get out on his innocence claim for, on, with DNA. Um, and there's a, that's, a, that's another story as Ronnie and I could tell it. Um, but that um, next day, that's when Governor Ryan says, I've been looking at the map. And I've noticed that the majority of cases that are on death row are coming from areas that are predominantly black. This is a governor that was the pharmacist Republican from Kankakee. All of a sudden he's talking about racism and he describes systematic racism in, in, in Illinois' death penalty system. And therefore he couldn't trust it. And he commuted all the sentences, 176 sentences to life without parole. 
the most extraordinary moment in all of our lives. Um, very, pe very few people get to witness history and be a, a part of history actually we pushed it. We were we were moving with the wave, and very few people get to have that kind of experience. It will bind us forever to each other, um, wherever we go in our lives. And I'm I'm eternally grateful um, because I am them. I was them, um, and I know Alice will say the same thing. When we were on that streets, we weren't we weren't Joan and Alice. We were them. We were we became something else. And it's the most amazing moment when you're caught up in a cause and it's not about you. You're in something that is so much bigger. And we were, you know, so intimately connected that we were it was it was it was one struggle, one fight. Um, today, um, yeah, um, I stay in touch. I stay in touch with with Stanley. He's got a play. We wrote a play together. And Ronnie and I and Mark, I hope, are going to get involved and try and get this play performed because there's still, I believe, a hundred cases of people that have been tortured by um, by by Chicago cops um, that had did not get relief. See, if you were on death row, it was easier to get relief than if you were doing a life sentence without possibility of parole. It was harder, and it's still harder for us to prove those cases because there's not as much attention on it. There was a lot of attention on the death penalty, a spotlight went on it, but some guys got, there's the only way to say it is kind of buried alive and they can't get out. And so um, the play is a really good um, reenactment of the torture. And so if we could get that shown in different places around the country, that would, that would be wonderful. Um, there's also the book. So Ronnie's got his book, My Midnight Sun, Midnight Hour. Now is that published? My midnight years. The name of the name of my book is My Midnight Years. My Midnight Years, and that is published, and you can get that off of Amazon. Stanley's book, Stanley, and, and then they put out another one. Stanley, Ronnie, Marvin Reeves, and Mark Clement's book um, is um, Mark's actually Tortured, Tortured by Blue, and that is I just I hesitated because there's it's in between publishers right now, so you can you can't. You can you can just stay tuned. Just torture by blow. Um, it will be available. It was it, it was under one publisher, but now it's being switched to um, their own. their self publishing at this point. So, um, and then um, and what else? And then and then personally, I'm working with um, men who are in prison who have a newspaper. One of the the second largest newspaper and uh, most professional newspaper in the state of California called the Mule Creek Post. We created a nonprofit called Incarcerated Allied Media. And we get the news, we're getting the news out um, as much as we can. We, this is how I met David, uh, was through the work with the Mule Creek Post. And I look at, I never have looked at this struggle as isolated to just Chicago. It's the more we get the word out, the, the reason, there was a reason why the whole world was interested in that. Because again, it's symptomatic. It's an egregious example, but it's symptomatic of racism in the United States. That's how things like, like that are able to occur. So yeah, so I think, um, I think that's probably enough out of me. We, we continue to work together and you know, our work won't be done as Ronnie says until we drop dead. And then when we do, there'll be somebody else to pick it up after us. Thank goodness for the Black Lives Matter movement. I, you know, um, in, in closing here, you know, it, my story of how I came to this is kind of interesting because it was um, so much by accident. Um, I had, uh, I read a lot 
uh, in my line of work because it, it's a way of learning about things that uh, are necessarily out there. And I uh, came across uh, Flint Taylor's book. Uh, I had read a lot on uh, Fred Hampton and, uh, and his murder. And so um, I, one of my friends is a guy named Maurice Posley, who you probably know uh, out of Chicago. And, uh, and he recommended Flint's book uh, on one of the social media. So I'm like, well, I'll read that. Um, and so, you know, his book starts out with uh, uh, the Fred Hampton uh, story and how bad the judge was in that case. And then goes into this torture scandal. And as I'm reading this book, it's like uh, I'm having like these two different thoughts. Right. One is, hey, I didn't know this was going on. And I'm not a naive guy. Like I paid attention when when Governor Ryan was ending the death penalty. And, and somehow, you know, I had picked up uh, about the um, uh, all of the. Uh, the stuff in terms of, um, you know, the wrongful convictions, but I hadn't picked up the torture aspect of it. And of course I knew about the death penalty. Um, so as I'm reading this, I'm like, okay, um, this is pretty bad. And, and I'm not a naive guy. And at the same time, I'm like, how in the world did I not know about all of this? And, and, and so um, from there, you know, I reached out to Flint and I got him on the show. And then when uh, Governor Ryan and Maurice put out their book on the death penalty, uh, I had him on the show and now I got you guys on the show. So it's been an interesting uh, journey for me uh, going from being appalled and reading this to actually talking to people that have actually been through all this. I mean, it, it seems like such a distant thing in the past, but it's really not. Um, and I think, um, you know, the, the part about uh, Burge is, you know, they fire him, but he's able to avoid it, um, anything other than what, a year in prison or something like that. And then uh, he was able to keep his pension. Well, he got four years, but didn't he get released after one? No. So he, oh, okay. So it's a little better than I thought, but not much. Uh, considering how long he was involved in in that that conduct, um, so um, we're just about out of time here. Uh, did somebody want to uh, have like a quick closing thought, Mark or Ronnie? Well, this is one thing that we must think about. If police officers can torture people and never be held accountable, what message does that send to prosecutors and to our criminal justice system? You know, all across this country, people are still on death row. Many of them are innocent individuals. However, they are still there because of political football that is played by our judiciary system that is aided by police officers. What happened in the city of Chicago is an eye opener where that over 200 black 
and Latino men and women being taken down to police stations and tortured and not one cop out of 34 different cops ever saw the penitentiary for their actual act of police torture. So I think that is something that we all must think about is how the city of Chicago covered up what happened as the result of John Burge and his torture scandal. And Joan, quick thought? Never underestimate the power of a handful of committed activists working with prisoners to bring down, to bring down a system. So never, never, never underestimate it. We actually reached the highest levels of power in Illinois and brought the thing down. And it was a handful of us, a handful of prisoners, handful of activists, utterly committed to it. Um, it's a met, that's the lesson that needs to keep getting out there because especially now with Black Lives Matter movement, you know, it, it's inspiring to know that you can actually win. <laughs> And that you, you know, right now there's a lot of questions about reforms, but there's bigger fish to fry, you know, defund the police, you know, I mean, there's, 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 can we do that? Yes, we could do this. Abolish the prisons. Yes, abolish them. Aim big, aim high. And, um, and, you know, I have all the belief in the world that it can be done as long as enough of us are, are convinced of it. So, yeah. Well, Thank you all for coming on and sharing your amazing stories. And I'm sorry for all the heartache that you guys have had to go through. Um, and unfortunately, uh, one of our guests is, is still incarcerated. So uh, for him, uh, th this is not in the past at all. This is continuing. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.